over the course of human history. There's been Noah's Ark, savior of mankind. St. Francis of Assisi, foregoing his wealth to be savior of all animals. And Curtis Sliwa, guardian angel and savior of New York City, protecting both man and beast. The Curtis Sliwa Show presents... Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. From bipeds to quadrupeds and everything in between. Now, with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Sliwa. Once again, we join all of you, just like last week, same time, same place, 10 to 11 on Sundays. In the beginning of the year, we will have a nationally syndicated uh, animal welfare show at this time heard across the nation. And obviously, it's all due to the efforts of my wife, Nancy, who's been an animal rescuer long before I ever met her. Grew up with animals out in Bohemia and Suffolk County and is always doing whatever she can for the animal community. Uh, but before we get into the story that went viral all over the nation, Nancy, that that steer, that bull that escaped onto the tracks of Newark, New Jersey, in order to avoid being slaughtered in the slaughterhouse. Let's get into uh, basically a Nancy Sliwa PSA <laughs> about the inclement weather. And this apparently this weather will be worse than last Sunday. What should people do in advance of this nor'easter clobbering us? Yeah, well, obviously the um, the worst part of the rain is, you know, at least in our area, New York City, is really set to start around midnight. And it's going to be fairly like torrential downpours. So, um, you know, like, again, to whatever extent, if you have any, um, you know, sort of um, place that you can offer for any of these outdoor animals that maybe they go into a garage or maybe you're leaving something open for them so it gives them a little bit of a break but you know obviously they're going to be hunkering in to avoid the rain there'll be rain for a lot of hours so you know I would I would continue even though the it's not going to be super cold you know making sure that you do things like knocking on the hood of your car because I think that that's probably going to be an area you know, a lot of different um, animals will try to uh, find some sort of uh, relief from the rain. And then, of course, uh, you know, trying to continue to provide any area of warmth you can for them in the upcoming days. Because, you know, you think about it, any animal who lives outdoors, I'm thinking like, for instance, the cats, you know, once they get wet, it's very tough for them to dry off because uh, the temperature really doesn't rise that high. So, again, it's going to be dipping again in temperature. So, you know, be mindful even after the rain of trying to provide some level of warmth uh, for any animal or some dry bedding because, you know, you don't want to run the risk of hypothermia uh, going forward. Well, you know, what's interesting is that when it's inclement weather like this, the threat of 60-mile-per-hour winds, uh, huge torrential rain downpours in nor'easter, you know, humans who are living outside, like a lot of our homeless and emotionally disturbed, immediately go into the subway. I mean, I, I already saw them there this evening uh, when I was coming to WABC. It'll be packed in the morning. But those animals really have nowhere to go. So everything you're asking our listeners to do is so incredibly important. Because imagine if you were stuck out there as a human being with no cover, no sanctuary, what it would be like 
if, in fact, 60-mile-an-hour winds hit and there are rain gusts just pouring down left and right? Yeah, I mean, and obviously, um, to your point, the potential for uh, flying debris and then also uh, power lines, or, you know, things, uh, you know, getting affected because of the, the wind damage. So, you know, a lot of elements for, for danger out there, unfortunately, now with the weather. And, you know, and again, of course, the this the sea is going to be rising so much. So I'm not sure to what extent it might throw out some of the, the, the sea life. But I guess if you're walking on the shoreline, you know, take a look in the next day or two. And the birds. There'll be a lot well, of yeah, birds. Well, and, and actually, to your point with the birds, uh, earlier today, before it even started raining, the pigeons seem to know what's going on because I haven't seen them, which is unusual. Yeah, no, the instinct is always there. The animals, they don't need to, to hear Lloyd Lindsay Young do a weather report. Hello! They don't need to hear that. They have it. It's innate in them. But what are they going to do if they have no place to seek sanctuary? So please, everybody out there, if in fact this lives up to its billing, it's going to be nasty. But on another front, uh, Kathy Hochul signed a bill that now says that horses cannot be taken to the slaughterhouse and prepared uh, the meat used for any kind of food source. I don't think a lot of people realize, but especially coming into the Christmas season, traditional for Italians, you know, to have the 10-course meal. And the second course after the brodo with tortellini would be uh, brajol. And I would always say to them, you know, that brajol is horse meat. No, no, you're making that up, Curtis. They always accuse me of making this stuff up. I said, no, Italians eat more horse meat than anywhere else uh, in the world. And the second uh, most number of horse meat eaters is Argentina. And the third most is uh, America. And a big chunk of that is New York. What does this bill say? Yeah, and and actually, to your point, this is really interesting because I didn't realize that it wasn't until after 2000 that supposedly um, horse meat is banned for uh, public slaughter and food consumption. But the problem is... Those laws are so, um, you know, they're so difficult to enact and really laxly enforced. So starting in, you know, uh, 2021, there was a bit of an uproar because uh, some of the racehorses in New York were known to have gone to slaughter. So it started then with banning that. But now just recently, it's saying that any horse and what they're they're really going to get more than anything is that when people have horses that get older or have health issues, you know, probably because, you know, there's no value to them supposedly anymore in their eyes. Oh, now you can sell them. And there is some, you know, there's some economy for this. So in Mexico and Canada, all horse meat is permitted. So what they're trying to do is end even the fact that you can ship these animals whatsoever. But again, here comes the enforcement problem because it's so difficult uh, you know, and again, there's not really a, a public database that's accessible that when a horse gets sold at a slaughter, at an auction, and then they transport them across the lines. But the sad reality is they are uh, still being consumed, uh, you know, consistently. And with all of these laws that have been in place, I mean, even like the New York Racing Association, uh, they've been uh, banning this, you know, for sale since 2009. But uh, you know, enough of the, the Times Union, I think, is the, the organization that had done research that up until this day, even, these horses are continuing to go to slaughter. So the problem is it's a great concept, 
and it's a it's it should be done. It just doesn't seem that they're truly trying to enforce this. Well, I want to take a little credit for that. Years ago, there was a horse named Sliwa that <laughs> was running in races, and then uh, it wasn't doing that well. So they started to run it in, um, I would call it uh, D-grade tracks, tracks that maybe shouldn't even be a horse racing track any longer because it's so broken down. So the Sliwa horse competed in a race outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and then I hadn't heard of it any longer. So I went on a search. Nobody would give me any answers. And then a woman down in Florida contacted me and said, the Sliwa horse went to the slaughterhouse and uh, it was turned into some kind of meat products. And I went crazy. I was calling up everybody. How could you do this? Uh, this uh, horse had done fairly well initially, and then it just wasn't it wasn't bringing, uh, it wasn't finishing first, second, or third. It wasn't making any money. It was costing money. So it goes to the slaughterhouse so you can turn it into horse burgers. So I yeah. think uh, some of my uh, noise back then may have shook a few rafters, but it's really about time. And that leads us into the main story that occurred this week. It went viral all over the world. A steer somehow got loose was seen running on the tracks at Newark Penn Station. Eventually, it was corralled, and then uh, it was tranquilized, not euthanized, tranquilized, and uh, was taken to a sanctuary so it could live uh, the rest of its life. Now, isn't this interesting? We've reported on so many of these stories, Nancy. If the animal is able to break out of their confinement, and run and run and run, and eventually they either get tired, they stop running, or they're tranquilized. They get to live out their life in a sanctuary, but if they don't escape their containment, they get killed in a slaughterhouse. It's almost like saying, yeah, if you run for your life, you'll you'll be able to live more. If you don't, we're going to slaughter you. Yeah, it's certainly the the last hope for all of these animals that are destined seems to be if they try to make some last-ditch escape. And, you know, obviously the attention that they get, you know, all of a sudden just, you know, puts the spotlight on them. And, that, you know, it doesn't, it's not worth the while for them to really try to reclaim the animal, especially once you have sanctuaries willing to come in and, you know, um, absorb <laughs> that animal into their home. So this one is a Skyland Animal Sanctuary and Rescue. So there's the ones who took uh, the what has now been dubbed Ricardo, and now Ricardo is going to be able to enjoy the rest of his life and not have to worry about going to the slaughterhouse. But yeah, again, to your point, like uh, if you if you become a social media star, uh, you know, you make it into the news, then uh, yeah, you have a chance. Yeah, it's like Flacco the owl. <laughs> you know, last week we were talking about how they want to cull 500,000 owls out west. They want to slaughter them. But they look at Flacco the owl, who has lived beyond everyone's predictions. You know, all the bird watchers. Whoop-a-woo, whoop-a-woo. It can't survive on its own. It's been hand-fed since birth. It's doing quite well, bird watchers. Splendidly well. Yeah, one 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 animal gets saved. We all pat each other on the back. In the meantime, we're slaughtering hundreds of thousands. Well, therein lies the problem. Man. And this this steer, we still don't know the details. Where was it being transported to? How was it able to extricate itself? 
What are the conditions of the slaughterhouse that was being taken to? It might have been one of these smaller slaughterhouses they have in the inner city now, whether they're preparing halal, kosher meat, whatever, whatever it is. And we don't hear anything else, nothing, because I'd love to be able to go into these facilities. I I was in two of them in the South Bronx. They're despicable, absolutely despicable the way the animals are treated. Well, I'm pretty sure that's that's probably why they weren't aggressively going after this this escapee because that's the last thing you want to do, draw attention to this horrific business and likely the horrible practices you have relating to this. So, yeah, I mean they they clearly had to let this this guy go. Our numbers 1-800-848-9222 hip hip hooray for Ricardo. Who, again, what? let's give the name of that sanctuary that's going to give him a very good life the rest of his life for making a, a run for it? Oh, uh, Skylands Animal Sanctuary and Rescue, it's called. Apparently, uh, Ricardo gave his very first interview uh, <laughs> from that sanctuary. And uh, the, the work that they do, a lot of these people who run these sanctuaries, uh, Nancy, and there are many of them, they they don't get recognized. They don't get any attention. There's a lot of work involved. They have to raise money. It's very difficult for them sometimes to raise money for all the animals they take care of. And so when something like this happens, it's the one time we hear about them. But, boy, we, we need to be talking more about the great work that they do because without them, those animals would have no chance to survive, none whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, and it's like beyond usually the medical cost, which are usually significant when you're doing rescues, but then it's the amount of time it takes to socialize and, you know, that, that element of having to you make them comfortable around humans again. So, I mean, it's a lot of work and effort that goes into rescue. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I noticed uh, that in Utah, a couple was arrested after their kitten tested positive for meth. Now, this is happening increasingly more and more when people are using drugs, whether recreationally or whether they're using it because they're stone-cold addicts, that somehow their animals who are living with them are ingesting it or ingesting it out in the streets when it's discarded, and it's causing them all kinds of problems. Yeah, so in this, so in this story, what it, um, unfortunately, it was a couple who were living out of their car uh, in Salt Lake City, basically camping in a parking lot in their car, but they, uh, you know, have drug, um, you know, drug habits, so within the car itself, initially the, the cops were called because these two individuals were slumped over in the car. And when they got there and obviously they were able to take the, the two people there, uh, they noticed that there was a, a sound coming from the car. And it was this Siamese kitten, like a, a one-month-old, that was in a duct-taped uh, sandwich container with like a little tiny, I guess, hole where the, the, the head could you know pop out of. But you could tell this cat had been clearly, um, you know, abused. I mean, the the whole situation was horrific. But given that they had found the drugs in the car, right away when the uh, kitten was brought to the veterinarian, they did blood work, and the kitten had actually had methamphetamines in its system. So, you know, the only thing they can do at this point is, you know, given the size, the age of the cat, you can't really be super aggressive. You just have to, um, you know, do like a lot of fluids and, 
um, trying to just get this out of the cat system, hopefully because it's young, you know, it will recover. You know, the people are being charged, but, you know, as you can imagine, it's, you know, abuses against animals aren't going to be treated very seriously. And obviously the bigger issue is these people having the addiction. So, I mean, it's just a horrific situation all around. Last week, we talked about the war on cats in Australia. First, in the lockdown and pandemic, the Australian officials put out an edict to destroy all the feral cats in the outback. All that accomplished was they were overrun with rats. Then they issued a study last week that said the likelihood is that if you've been feeding cats since you were young, you're more likely to develop dementia than if you weren't. Again, uh, war on cats. And then this week, I don't know if it's the Audubon Society or what group that has declared war on cats. What are they claiming now, which is going to lead some people to euthanize, destroy, kill cats? Well, yeah. So for some reason, this this seems to be a lot of odd behavior in terms of happening in Britain in terms of their perception and treatment of cats. So they have clearly a very love-hate relationship. And, you know, the, the, the idea is that the outdoor cat population, you know, as is made a claim by lots of these different uh, societies, conservation societies, they're taking out bird populations, they're taking out vegetation populations. Yeah, I mean, but obviously you have to get at the heart of how you control population in general, but their suggestion is a combination of Anyone who has a cat, almost treating it very much similar to like a dog. When you're, you, you know, if you're going to let them outside, they need to be on a leash. They need to have, uh, be wearing a bell, things of that nature. So it can, you know, ward off uh, any potential attack on birds that are vulnerable. But then also the feral cats, because they don't have any owner, they just consider them to be, uh, you know, such an invasive species and so detrimental to so many birds that they're saying that they want, they're calling for the euthanizing of all of them. But, you know, again, the, the problem is there's so many other factors that are contributing to the loss of the environment, and these are just seen as like the last, you know, the, the last-ditch effort to try to save this shrinking environment that really the birds no longer have. And because the cats happen to be there too, the, you know, there's the problem for them. But now consider that during COVID, the health minister in Britain also considered telling the public population that they would have to exterminate their own pet cats because they were concerned about COVID spreading. So again, they're pretty quick to hold cats accountable for a lot and not to be very uh, humane in their treatment, as far as I can tell. It's the same country that loved to talk about fox hunts, where they would sick the dogs on the foxes once they caught them and rip them up and shred them to pieces, and they considered that a very manly sport. You know, the royal family were going fox hunting to watch the dogs catch the fox and shred it to smithereens. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah, but again, it's like you wonder, because they really do love animals there. They have a newspaper, The Sun, that's owned by Murdoch, that's read by millions and they they always have a picture of Brits with dogs. They really do love dogs. But again, when it comes to cats, uh, they always seem to find a reason to basically act like cats. Uh, you need to be suspicious of cats. Yeah. 
You need to be careful around cats. And, and to your point, that's where a little bit of the, the oddity comes from, because it seems like the public at large, they are pet owners, they love cats, but for some reason the official position of the government is always to treat them as potential uh, problems as opposed to Australia, where the public at large is behind these, uh, you know, sort of moves to try to cull the population. So at least in Britain, the people, the population, they're a little bit more normal, and they're saying, wait, this doesn't make any sense, and we love cats, and they're our pets, so what are you doing? Let's go to the phones. It's Aaron calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here on the Welfare Hour of WABC. Aaron? Hi, I just wanted to mention... um about the, you mentioned before the kosher and a lot of slaughterhouses. So I've been to a couple of slaughterhouses for kosher in uh, New York State, and uh, one upstate and uh, one in uh, also upstate in Monroe. So the way it works by poultry, I know, is that when the all the all the chickens are on a like assembly line, like a long line of all the baskets, all the containers for the chickens. And they're separated, so up until it's that bird's turn, they do not see what's going on. So that's in place on purpose that they shouldn't... Uh, well, Aaron, Aaron, let me ask you, let me ask you, when your holiday comes about and you take a chicken and swing it around your head and then slit its throat and bleed it out in the street, you think that's humane, Aaron? Well, it's bad by the time you bleed it out. Oh, oh. So, great, you take a chicken, you swing it around your head, and then you take a blade out and you slit its throat and they bleed right out on the street. Uh, Boy, that's real humane, Aaron. Well, yeah, and, and I think problem. it's it's a, it's a slow it's a makeshift slaughterhouse. Yeah, uh, well, what the really hell? Right? Yeah, and and again, right? So it's I I think a lot of these uh, elements that are it's supposedly intended to make the process more humane. Obviously, given that it's completely inhumane, but to make it more humane, like the fact that they can't see each other. I mean, to think that the animal can't smell and hear that death is happening right down the assembly line, like it's probably even more mortifying that they don't see what's going on. Like, so I'm not sure if we can really judge how, how, how kind or cruel it is, but it just doesn't sound good to do it overall. Well, I think it's uh, the, uh, I think the holiday is Kapuras, if I remember. I remember the first time I saw it in Williamsburg, they had trucks of chickens uh, just crowded together in crates, and they were taking them uh, out and swinging it over their heads and then taking a straight-edge razor, slitting their throats, bleeding them out in the street. Kids are watching. Everyone, I'm like, well, what, what the hell is it? Oh, it's, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's religious. It's tradition. Yeah, a lot of things that are tradition that we don't do anymore. Yeah, I mean, and again, and there's like decades of all of this like legislation that, that's going through the courts and money being spent to try to give you know, the housing of these animals while they're awaiting the slaughter, like two more inches or the ability to stand up and turn around instead of being like, all of these things are so piecemeal and ridiculous and make no sense. How about just having a healthier focus in general and not continuing to do this? Like that would make way more sense to me and better for everyone in general. Well, it's just like we said, uh, Governor Hochul, to her credit, signed legislation to make sure that horses are not being taken to slaughterhouse slaughterhouses and turned into horse burgers, uh, which for a long time, again, I can't say it enough. I would tell Italian-Americans, you know, that brajol you're eating there. Yeah, 
We have it every year. Well, that's horse meat. Ah, no, it's not. You're making that up. I'm telling you, it's horse meat. Yeah, and like you said, too, like also adding on to like the, the social media like hype, like it was because the attention got drawn to the uh, racehorses who people were knowing and loving. Oh, my gosh, I don't want that, that horse going to slaughter. But it took the well-known horse to get this rolling in the first place in New York. So, I mean, that's sometimes what it is. You have to shame people into doing what's right. They took the Sliwa horse to a slaughterhouse. <laughs> oh, no. They will never forgive them for that. I will never, ever, ever forgive them for that. Let's go if we can to Dave and Comac. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dave. Hey, Curtis. Hey, Nancy. Uh, I saw some video on Facebook, I believe it was, of uh, somebody shining a laser on the chest of one cat, and the other cat sees it and starts batting at the other cat. To me, this is animal cruelty because that wouldn't be happening if the moronic human uh, wasn't shining a laser on one cat. And now, as a result, those cats fear each other. Would you agree with that? Oh, well, yeah. That, okay, first of all, that's completely ridiculous behavior to be instilling, and it is cruel. I mean, why would you want to set them up against each other? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who shouldn't own pets who do, and it's sad to see what they're willing to do and what they think is acceptable. Let's go to Michael in Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at the Animal Welfare Edition of WABC, Michael. Nancy Curtis, the best, as usual. Um, Nancy, I want to ask you a question about, um, do you ever think that we could get pandas in, like, Long Island or New York? <laughs> That's a, a <laughs> question. I don't know. <laughs> like, is he taking a plane or it's like a... Well, well a I, 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 think, I think, Nancy, I, I can answer that. Uh, okay. Because for many, many years... When she was in uh, the House of Congress, Carolyn Maloney, who lost her seat in reapportionment to uh, Jerry Nadler, one of her pet uh, uh, desires was to bring pandas to the Central Park Zoo. It never happened. But uh, China did send some pandas over to our national zoo in Washington, some other zoos, and then recalled them like they do their ambassadors. You know, when we're angry at them, they're angry at us. And now John Katsimatidis, our owner-operator, who was helping Carolyn Maloney for years in that effort to bring pandas to the Central Park Zoo, has met with the uh, Chinese delegation, uh, has begun negotiations to see if uh, China itself, mainland China, uh, will send some pandas over to Central Park Zoo because he feels with the dearth of tourism that we have ever since the lockdown and pandemic of uh, March of 2020, that having pandas, which is a rare uh, thing in any zoos in the United States, would actually generate tourism. I concur with that. I just said, make sure you got a lot of bamboo because that's what they eat. They eat bamboo. And uh, we'll keep our audience, Michael and the rest of them, uh, engaged on whether John is successful uh, in doing that, uh, in following up the years of work that Carolyn Maloney, the congresswoman, and John had done trying to bring pandas to the Central Park Zoo. WABC. The Curtis Lewa Show presents Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. Now, with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Lewa. 
Remember, we're on the precipice of in the new year. This show that you're listening to, the Animal Welfare Show, you've been listening to now close to two years, will be nationally syndicated by our parent uh, company, parent uh, uh, provider of WABC's uh, entertainment, news, and information, Red Apple Media, all across the nation. Uh, If we can, Nancy, let's go to Joe in Queens who wants to talk about the seals on the Jersey Shore. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, how you doing? Oh, also, the movie Mo Gamba, they couldn't make a movie like now with Clark Gable. That was filmed supposedly in Tanzania, uh, Kenya, and Uganda. They couldn't, they wouldn't get the animals together like that now. But I want to ask you about the seals. They supposedly come down the harbor seals and the gray seals from up in New England and even Canada around now to the Jersey Shore. I want to find out if there's anything, if they have been affected by the windmills uh, issue. And also the horseshoe crabs, I don't see as many as I used to see. They supposedly clean up the the ocean a little bit, uh, help filter some of the garbage. I'm wondering if there's any news on why there seems to be less horseshoe crabs as well. uh, Nancy, can you give us an update on the windmills? Because I know there's been some uh, news on that front. Okay, so well, okay, so the big thing now going on with the windmills obviously is they're being stalled a bit in their development and it's not because of the effects that it's having in the ocean, which it really should be the reason, but it's because the companies they're trying to renegotiate their contracts. They're saying, "Oh, well, we didn't anticipate there was going to be this much inflation and and these many things going on. So what we have right now is that there's a number of contracts that are are being re- renegotiated, and even next year that are, that are going to be up for review. And um, Hochul is actually going to be, uh, you know, you got, we got to press her because she's going to be behind giving the thumbs up or thumbs down. These are like the equivalent of like no bid contracts for these companies that are trying to renegotiate because they want to have the people paying more money and they want to have... So again, it's not being stopped because of that. However, I think the reason why um, it, a lot more of the uh, the ocean life is, is winding up in places that it isn't usually, it does have a lot to do with um, elements of like the water change, supposedly, like with the, the, the heating of the temperature, but they're running out of spaces to go that are viable. So I don't know if it's that they're necessarily going to land here or settle here, but I think they might just be passing through looking for better habitat. So I think we're really seeing like a changing landscape of the ocean that will start to, you know, really become very, very clear in the next couple of years because of all the work being done. But I think you're like the the horseshoe crab expert, Curtis. Yeah, and uh, just on the nature of the seals, I remember seeing them right by the Barnegat Bay. I was in between Barnegat Township and Brick Township, and they have that long area before you hit the Atlantic Ocean. I was with uh, our board member at the time, Johnny D. had a nice boat for his family, and unfortunately he's passed away from pancreatic cancer. But he took me out on the boat. We were queued up behind the Sharp James 1. This was a huge, I mean, it wasn't quite the Jeff Bezos uh, kind of yacht, but it was a huge yacht. It said Sharp James One, the crooked uh, former mayor of Newark, who uh, was always complaining that the Coast Guard, when he wanted to go out of the Barnegat uh, Bay area into the ocean, uh, would pull over his boat and 
charge him of uh, yachting while black, which was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard in my life because all you had to do is wait in the queue. But I'm pretty sure that at the ocean uh, opening where you go down into the Atlantic from Barnegat Bay, I remember seeing those seals there, and everybody stops, you know, because the seals, they frolic, they play. It's, like, great, especially uh, for everybody to just stop in their boats and watching them. People offshore, they have homes there. They see it. It's it's an amazing show. Secondarily, horseshoe crabs, I am an expert. When I was a kid, we went on uh, uh, Bell Parkway, which will probably in a few hours be underwater, as it always is whenever there's even a little spritz, and we would stop at Plum Beach. And Plum Beach is right there, like in the middle of uh, Rockaway Parkway exit, exit 13, and going out to Knapp Street, uh, Sheepshead Bay. It's right there. And I walked out on the beach, and I saw all these horseshoe crabs. I didn't know they were horseshoe crabs at the time. I thought they were like helmets from World War II, German helmets that had washed up on the shore. But they had little tails in the back. And little did I realize that they were, I guess they were in the midst uh, of mating, whatever way they made it. I have no idea. But I, I was asking too many questions, and my mom just pulled me away. She said, don't go near them. You don't want to touch them. They'll get you with their tail. Subsequent to that, uh, and ever since, I've learned a lot about it. Right now, they are a protected species. So, like, in Jamaica Bay, which is part of the national uh, uh, national uh, park system. Uh, if you go in there and try to harvest the few remaining horseshoe crabs, because they're not as plentiful as they used to be, uh, the Chinese uh, like to do that late at night under the cover of darkness because they think that there's a a, pro- a process underneath the horseshoe crab that's like a um, uh, what can I call it? A aphrodisiac. Uh, and a male enhancement thing, all in the same thing. So they harvest it, and then they send it back to China. They make a lot of money. You get arrested uh, by the parks police, the federal parks police, and they hit you with incredible fines, like you can't imagine. And sometimes you get jail time. So we've gone from an area along the East Coast that had, I mean, thousands of horseshoe crabs that would come ashore, uh, like I saw when I was a kid in the 60s, to now where you very rarely see the horseshoe crabs. It's almost like so many species uh, throughout the world that are slowly almost like going extinct. And that's what I think is happening to the horseshoe crab, which actually you can trace to prehistoric times. That's how long back it goes. But the, the gentleman from Jersey is absolutely correct. They actually are, they clean up the ocean. You know, they're like, uh, like bottom uh, fish. You know, they just uh, can, can clean up the debris, eat what uh, other uh, uh, shellfish, trafe will not eat. It's almost like uh, where you were out there in Suffolk County when they have all those oysters out there. They actually clean the water in those oyster beds. They suck in all the pollution and they put out clean water. Yeah, and, and to your point, like this, this is one of the reasons why uh, you know you're also hearing this past year about all of these algae blooms that have been so incredibly detrimental to all the sea life because the delicate balance you don't have the 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 same amount of 
um, ocean life that is supposed to take care of these toxins. And then as a result, this is happening. So there, I mean, everything, it's, it's, the cause and effect is just so very clear. And unfortunately, what's happening in the ocean seems to be happening very fast with a lot of different life forms. I mean, I'm not sure how, how quickly they can recover, but it seems fairly extreme. Nowhere near as many horseshoe crabs as it was when I was a kid. They were everywhere. Let's go to Anna in the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Hour of WABC, Anna. Hi, Curtis. Hi, um, Nancy. Love you both. Um, yeah, I'm calling because I have a cat. And November 28th of last month, he made three years old, right, of human life. But he has a blanket, right, and he treats the blanket like his girlfriend. <laughs> but he hasn't reached a climax. And I'm wondering how long would it take to cat's life or whatever for him to reach a climax. Uh, you're the expert on that, Nancy. Yeah. Wait, wait, but this is a fixed cat, yeah? No, he's not fixed. Like he, he's not fixed. Yeah, that's that. That's a problem. That that is going to be a problem. So I, I would just suggest that. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I would. I don't think that's that's just never going to stop. <laughs> so I, I don't know. And that's why but, you know. You know what the, I'm trying to find out. Will he ever have a climax? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I think logistically they all they always can. Like you know, it's funny because I have like a cat or two that likes to blanket, but it's more of like that. You can tell it's like that old mother habit where it, it looks like they're trying to like you know they're sort of a with the paws and stuff. But I think what you're talking about, I mean, your that behavior is a lot of times when people find the quote unquote annoying behavior. It will be like that forever because you know, the cat will maybe it'll just try to be escaping. But yeah, I, I would just say it's it, the best route is to fix it because that cat's going to always be doing that like yeah, forever. The cat's going to be in heat all the time if yeah, you all don't the time. stay all, all, And then they spray, which has the the scent to it. So it's like they become so much more. I mean, again, it makes much more sense to have them fixed indoors. Their personality changes because they're kind of on edge all the time because they're looking for a mate. Once you take that out of the element, they can calm down and relax. Their whole behavior changes. Absolutely. We, we've seen that with some of the cats you've rescued that before they were spaded and neutered, whether they were male or female, sometimes they were uncontrollable. They were like, uh, they were like juvenile delinquents. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, and they can't help themselves, and it's like they can't even concentrate on anything else. And what's crazy is their their sense of smell is so strong that you can have a cat that's indoors, but you know if you have a window that's open, you have like a, a screen. Outdoor cats can smell cats, so I mean you're attracting cats from probably a few blocks away. That's how strong their senses are. So yeah, that's not going to stop. Absolutely. And when they grab the banky or the blanket. They almost bite it, and then they're pouring it endlessly. And I've seen Athena, our matriarch matriarch uh, cat, do that. I've seen some of the other cats do that. What is the purpose of when they do that? Well, like the the ones that we have that do it, it it definitely one hundred percent, and it's it's only the couple of them, and it mimics like what they uh, when they were like with the mother when they were feeding. That's why I see it with. You know, like when you have a cat who only has a short period of time sometimes with, like, the actual mother, then, you know, and again, I think it's just a good memory for them. So it's like they're they're doing what they would be doing if they were, like, feeding from the mother. And it's like, you know, they're going into that relaxed state. But that's what I've noticed. It's completely that action.
Let's go to Grace in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Hour of WABC, Grace. Curtis, Curtis, you, you speak about the about the horseshoe crabs. They contain one, if you, if you step on them or kill them, uh, their blood is blue. That is so, so, so important in research and in, in medicine. And you could have Nancy could check that out. They are, that's why they're disappearing, because they're being overharvested. That blood is unbelievably important in science and research and medicine. That's right. You, uh, you are correct. I remember uh, my uncle was explaining to me, and this is back in the 60s, uh, that if you came across a horseshoe crab and if they bled out, it would be blue blood. And I would say, well, what about when it hits the oxygen? Would it be red? And he said, no, it's blue blood. And I said, how can it be blue blood? But again, you remind me of that, Grace. It, they are. But does that mean they're wealthy? They're blue bloods? No, the thing is that the thing is that Nancy could check this out. They, their, that blood is absolutely important in in medical things and in research. It's used in medicines. Uh, I, I got to tell you, it reminds me when I was a kid, Nancy, and we'd go visit my father, pick him up to bring him home from the tank farms in Staten Island where they were on the Gulf Deer. They would unload their load and get a load and go back out to sea. So we'd have them home for about a day or two. Sometimes when uh, the ship was fogged in in the Straits of Verrazano, uh, my mom would look at the fog and say, well, the fog will burn off in a few hours. Uh, we're in Old Betsy, which was the 54 Ford with the wood paneling and the white wall tires. It was me, my sisters, Alita Maria. We went to the Staten Island Zoo back then. And, you know, the only thing they had in the Staten Island Zoo back then were horseshoe crabs. I said, Mom, what are we supposed to do with the horseshoe crabs? Pet them, pet them, you know, entertain them. We got to wait for the fog to burn off before your father can come through the Arthur Kill uh, and the, the straits there uh, in order to be able to um, uh, bring it into port by the tank farms. But I have extraordinary history. With horseshoe crabs. And they look at you in a funny way, too. Their eyes are way on the side of what looks like a, a German helmet. It's bizarre. I can only tell you that. Anyway, let's go to the phones if we can. Uh, William calling from Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, William. Yes, Mr. Curtis. You're the greatest. They did it the best of all time. I tried my best, but the babies, something between the babies and the um, animals, do you think they have beyond the five senses of earth, water, fire, spirit, and air that they can foresee things ahead of time as we owe senior citizens? Well, look, uh, that's a, a good question, Nancy. You've had far more experiences with a wide variety of animals when you grew up in Bohemia, out in Suffolk County, and obviously... Uh, when you return to New York City, uh, do you get a sense that all these animals know when trouble is coming long before we humans do? Uh, I'm going to go with yes, and I think primarily it's just very logical. It's There's a lot of things that are probably more easily perceivable if we're opening up more of our perceptions, but you know we live in a very structured society, Whereas animals, they're not beholden to those same sorts of constraints. So 
they're feeling, I think, a lot more of stuff that we should be able to feel. So I think they can perceive things sooner than we can. Apparently, in the Great Lakes, where I've spent some time, Lake Michigan, where my dad was from, Chicago, Saginaw, just go right on through them, Lake Huron. People have been dumping goldfish into the lakes, and now the goldfish are, like, dominating sea life in these Great Lakes? Yeah, so apparently that's the story, that it it really has come about because when people decide they don't want goldfish anymore, they're making the trek to the, the Great Lakes as opposed to what I think people usually do. They flush them down a toilet or something. I'm not really sure what they're saying here, but... They're saying people don't want their goldfish anymore, so they've just dumped them into the lakes. And now, because they're not in the constraints of a nor- normal goldfish uh, environment, they can grow to their normal size, and apparently that's like one to two feet. And it's overtaking all of the aquatic life because they're, you know, they're bigger than most things that exist within the Great Lakes, and they're willing to eat anything so they can stay alive, whereas, you know, most are on sort of more restricted diets. So it's devastating the uh, wildlife and ecosystem. So now they're trying to figure out how they can specifically remove the goldfish from these lakes, which sounds like it's going to be a difficult task. But they're, you know, trying to do PSAs to the public now to urge people, don't bring your goldfish here if you want to get rid of them. They're suggesting sanctuaries, veterinarians, and pet retailers. So I'm not sure. Well, uh, <laughs> having experiences, okay, like you're on Lake Saginaw, Lake uh, Michigan. Uh, that's I can understand how goldfish would survive there, but I've spent time along Lake Erie and Buffalo and Cleveland. I'd like to see a goldfish survive in that toxic environment. <laughs> I really, I would be amazed. If goldfish could survive in Lake Erie. In fact, we should have our Cracker Jack news team put in a call to Governor Hochul's office who says she can see the province of Ontario from her kitchen window, which is on the New York State side of Erie County, where uh, basically Lake Erie separates uh, both Canada and the United States. Yeah, I mean, and apparently they've been tracking this uh, sort of goldfish phenomena for several years. And I don't know what happens that for some reason when they go from indoors to outdoors, they become totally different. But they're saying they're they're living upwards of 15 years and, like I said, growing to be two feet long. I, I don't know where, I mean, that doesn't strike me as any sort of the, the goldfish that I, that I knew growing up in bowls, but... Apparently, Lake Erie has an effect on them. Watch, some genius will say, we'll put piranha in the Great Lakes, and that'll eliminate the goldfish and eliminate everything else there. But anyway, another great animal welfare show, soon to be going national in the beginning of the year. Nancy, if anybody wants to reach out to you, get more information, uh, how can they reach you? Uh, Well, uh, guardianangels.org, you can reach out there, or uh, Twitter, you can DM me, Nancy Sliwa ESQ. And we're still working on the new animal welfare uh, site so that it can debut when the show goes national, correct? Absolutely. We'll be ready. WABC.